Israel stands unified this week as hundreds of Gazan rockets rain on the country. Unusually of late, even Israel's political echelon has put aside its differences to stand together during the IDF's Operation Shield and Arrow. That's really good news for the country and for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, whose own coalition has increasingly taken to covert and overt threats on the stability of his government. But even after this conflict with Palestinian Islamic Jihad is put to rest, Netanyahu still has a battle on his hands to pass the budget or, as mandated by law, see his government topple. When the budget does pass, and most think it will, according to this week's guest, only then we'll see where the prime minister really stands on hot-button issues such as the judicial overhaul package. One of the terrible costs Netanyahu will pay for suddenly being in control again, for being in a position where his own coalition partners can't topple him and, and demand from him everything they want and, and, and embarrass him and shatter his you know popularity and, and just destroy everything for him, is that he, the buck stops with him. That's Times of Israel senior analyst Chaviv Rektegur. We sat down together on Wednesday before the reign of rockets began in a pocket of tense calm. We speak about how Israeli leadership fares under rocket fire, for better and worse, and then turn to Bibi's next operation, the budget, which has a fast approaching expiration date of the end of May. In this week of rare political and national unity, I, Amanda Borchel-Dan, ask Chaviv Retegur, what matters now? Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality they make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Chaviv, thank you so much for joining me today in the Nomi Studios from our partner podcast, Israel Story. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Amanda, it's so much fun to be here. This is a very cool studio. It really is. And we are here today on May 10th, two years after the previous Hamas war. So Chaviv, I ask you, in this week of uncertainty, in this week of increased conflict, in this week of military operations, what matters now? Well, Amanda, I think that um, on the domestic front, while this war is happening, while this potential escalation is happening on different fronts, inside Israeli politics, it's weirdly quiet. The Israeli political scene, the judicial reform is is 
right now frozen, and we're waiting until the end of May to pass the state budget. If the government passes the state budget, it basically has almost two years of political quiet. It's almost impossible to topple the government. And that's when they want to get into the big fights. They made a mistake, they think, of having these big fights up until now. And so we're in a bubble of quiet. And the big question, what matters now, I think, is what's going to be the day after that budget passes? What's happening in June? How will Israeli society essentially rekindle these big fights? That's fascinating. We'll get to that in just a minute. Before we do, I want to drill down a little bit about the idea of conflict and what happens to leadership during conflict. As I mentioned, two years ago, our Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu led the country during the previous larger scale Hamas war. Do you remember anything about how he picked up approval or disapproval after that uh, operation? I think at the beginning of the fighting in May of 2021, um, he, he had there's a closing of the ranks in the public. Um, that's true of most countries in most conflicts. Um, and then there was a sense as it dragged on that he didn't really have a strategy, that there wasn't a response. Um, there were um, there was uh, you know violence between Arabs and Jews in places like Lod with um, certain Arab uh, groups uh, led by uh, certain religious leaders literally ransacking the streets and, and chasing Jews in the streets um, in those places. Again, not the largest the large Arab community, but those sections of the Arab community um, who supported Hamas. And so the war had come into the streets of Israel, and there was no sense that the police could handle it or that anyone really expected it. Over the last two years, we've seen wars in Gaza expand to Lebanon, right? Just a month ago, we saw rocket fire from Lebanon over tensions with Gaza. And so there's a sense that things are expanding. At the beginning, there's a grace period to every leader. And then the average Israeli voter waits to see how the leader actually handles that political moment, that that war. And that a lot depends on that. And in the previous iteration of the war with Hamas, it lasted almost two weeks. And if I'm not mistaken, Netanyahu was somewhat criticized for dragging it out. Do you remember that? Yeah, it's happened multiple times. Also in 2014, um, the... The, as soon as war begins, right, Israel is not going to demolish Hamas, it's not going to retake Gaza, and Hamas is not going to destroy Israel and liberate Palestine and any of these right, dramatic sort of rhetoric and dramatic goals that these sides have, no, nobody wants to do them. And so the question becomes, who ends on an on a, on a image of victory, right? Who gets that last picture showing they're the defined ones and they're the ones who succeeded? And how you frame the end drives these wars for another week or two or sometimes three. Um, and so what we have seen is Hamas will start these uh, these exchanges of fire um, over the Temple Mount, over some other issue, over domestic concerns that it's trying to distract from. Be different wars have different starts, different causes, but then it becomes a question of who drags it out longer, who tries to create that victory image. And Netanyahu's interest usually is to show Hamas it doesn't get to stop the war. And that's because he's thinking ahead to the next war, right? So next time you shoot, by the way, FYI, it might not end in three days like it would be convenient for you. It, it might end three weeks later and half of your leadership is decimated plus terrible damage to Gaza, etc. So um, those wars drag out sometimes by Israeli policy. And sometimes, of course, it's the other way around. Israel's hammering Hamas, and Hamas's only goal is to show that it doesn't, it won't cow, it won't surrender, it won't stop, it can't be deterred, as also a message to the Israeli side. And as we're taping today, Hamas, in the meantime, is saying, I'm not going to play this game. I have not yet re retaliated, and it's possible that I will when I want to, not when you decide. 
Right, which is exactly what Israel just did, right? Last week, there was rocket fire, 102 rockets fired by Islamic Jihad in Gaza at Israel. And Israel then stopped, walked away, right? Quiet. And to the point that it caused a miniature political crisis in Israel with the extreme right fringe of the government come, you know, angry and, and, and posturing and saying, we're leaving, the, we're not going to vote with the coalition until you have a real response. And then day goes by and another day and another day and suddenly, boom, the leadership of Islam Jihad in northern Gaza. Everybody is surprised. Everybody is stunned. Nobody expected it. It turns out members of the cabinet weren't told of it. Um, and Israel just takes them out. And so Israel tried to say, you know, just because we walked away doesn't mean there won't be a revenge. And al-Hamas is doing the same thing back. Just so you know, we'll take our revenge. When we take it, you, you, you don't get to rest, right? It's a psychological war game. Now, one of the members of the security cabinet is also the person who is urging Israel to escalate last week. And we're talking, of course, about National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir. There are some on social media and perhaps even in media media who are saying that this current operation is, in fact, a way for Netanyahu to shore up his coalition and keep Ben-Gvir in the fold. What do you think of that? That would be very, very uncharacteristic of Netanyahu. Netanyahu has never favored conflict uh, as a solution to a political problem. Netanyahu has proven to Israelis that he will do a lot uh, to stay in power. He will not pass a state budget for an entire fiscal year. He will lie and cheat to people on national television right in front of everybody when everybody understands it shamelessly uh, to stay in power. He'll do many, many things to stay in power. He has never, this would be a big red line. Um, so no, I don't think that the attack was, the actual strike against Islamic Jihad was that. Also, uh, as far as we understand, the whole driving of this of this policy toward Gaza right now is being handled by Defense Minister Gallant. And Defense Minister Gallant doesn't, you know, do anything by, you know, Itamar Ben-Gvir's schedule. And so what I think Netanyahu did, and I think this is very smart of him to have done, and I think that he'll do this again, is to use the schedule that the military asked for, for the response, in a way that hurts Ben Gvir politically. Netanyahu is not above using a conflict to hurt his political opponent. Ben Gvir stormed out of a cabinet meeting, ran down to Sterot, postured and demonstrated and won't vote with the coalition in, in, in the Knesset, which is a very big deal because without him, Netanyahu doesn't have a majority. And then Netanyahu apparently kept him completely out of the loop. That is politics. In other words, Netanyahu literally, the, Ben Gvir is the national security minister. He's a member of the security cabinet. He had no idea this was coming. And that was a humiliation. And it was, by the way, said, Likud said so. Ben Gvir said last week, uh, I am not in the consultation um, uh, you know, forums. I'm not in the high forums. You're not consulting with me. And I want a much stronger response in Gaza. And so that's a problem that you're not consulting with me. And Likud put out an official public statement to the press that said Netanyahu decides who's in that forum. And if you don't like that, you are welcome to resign, right? So it was calling his bluff. And so Netanyahu has, has used this Gaza conflict uh, to humiliate uh, somebody who he thought had stepped out of line. Another interesting point about this, I think, is that the attorney general seemed to support Netanyahu's political use of not consulting with Ben Gvir. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, she explicitly uh, uh, said this was legal. The, the, the legal issue uh, is very minor. Um, so ben Gvir's people were whining that you, you can't go to war without a vote by the security cabinet, which by law is true. Uh, Israel goes to war only with the vote of the security cabinet, and the security cabinet is almost always, certainly right now, made up of the heads of all the coalition parties. So you can't just, a prime minister can't just declare war on Iran, for example. You do need some kind of a representation of the parliamentary majority in some way by law. That's in the law. Um, this is not a war. 
this is a single assassination intervention disruption of some terror activity and uh, and that that's been long established and and there's no ground invasion and it's not even a lot of airstrikes that doesn't of course help the people hurt in the three airstrikes or four airstrikes right and there were civilians killed in Gaza but it is a very very small scale operation by the way the United States has a similar thing president obama conducted a years long drone war targeted assassinations all over the world, uh, never got Senate approval or anything. He didn't need to. It's not a war, right? And so this is the same kind of a dynamic. So she said that it was approved, but she didn't really need to. Nobody really questioned it except Ben Gvir. Let's talk about a case in which an Israeli leader didn't receive more approval after a war or after an operation. I'm talking, of course, about former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert. Yes, very powerfully so. Um, Olmert in 2006 is elected prime minister uh, as the head of Kadima, talks about pulling out of the West Bank. He called it the convergence plan. This was an idea that had popular support in the immediate aftermath of the disengagement, which Israelis today remember with some regret, not all of them, uh, but they do think that, you know, Hamas took over and we've had endless wars since. Um, But... Almeida was talking about doing something like that in the West Bank, and then he has the suddenly the second Lebanon war happens on his watch, the Gilad Shalit kidnapping. There's this whole big dramatic in the summer of 2006. He's in power. I think his government was formed in March of 2006. He's already in Gaza fighting over the Shalit um, uh, kidnapping, the killing of two Israeli soldiers and the kidnapping of Shalit uh, by June. And July 12th, I think it was, Hezbollah carries out its first attack across the border at, uh, in the six years uh, since Israel pulled out in 2000. And so Olmert suddenly finds himself at war with Lebanon and Gaza. And at the very beginning of that war, he has tremendous popularity. Uh, Israelis are rallying to the cause. This seems like a very, very legitimate and justified war. We had pulled out of Gaza to the last inch. We had pulled out of South Lebanon six years earlier after 18 years uh, in South Lebanon. It's kind of the American experience of Afghanistan. There were tremendous numbers of terror attacks in the area. We enter it in 1982 at the very earliest moments that everyone's generally in support. And then we get bogged down there for 18 years and then in 2000 Barak pulls out overnight and Hezbollah takes over the vacuum left behind and everyone kind of generally agrees that that was a terrible idea and it's very similar to the American experience of Afghanistan but six years later Israelis are saying hey they're attacking us from a place we're gone from right we're on the blue line we're, we're, we're on the border um, and so Olmert has that political capital and then the war drags on day after day, week after week. And no matter what Israel does, no matter how much Israel bombs uh, the the launch sites in South Lebanon, many of which are inside villages, no matter how much uh, every bridge in Lebanon is basically destroyed, parts of Beirut lose electricity, there's tremendous damage caused in Lebanon. Hezbollah's entire strategy is to show the Israelis that um, Israel can't prevent, Israel can't deter it. And there's nothing Israel can do to Lebanon that will stop the rocket fire. Tragically, Israelis believe Hezbollah, and um, Israeli public opinion turns fiercely against a unilateral withdrawal also from the West Bank, um, and Olmert's approval rating begins to tank uh, roughly three weeks into the war. There's a sense that there is no easy way out, and Olmert, again, has this strategy of dragging it out to show that Hezbollah gets to start wars, it doesn't get to finish them. And so he drags it out, and on week five, finally there's a UN resolution, and uh, there's a UN force in South Lebanon, and all of that. And so Olmert, by the end of the war, Olmert feels that he's accomplished many things. Incidentally, we are now many, many years later, it's 2023, that was 2006. Um, Olmert says, you know, Hezbollah has basically been deterred since then. In other words, the smashing of Lebanon in that war 
really did accomplish what it was meant to accomplish. Uh, it was a success. But during that period, Israelis, hundreds of thousands of them fled their homes, hundreds of thousands. I was uh, one of my first uh, assignments uh, for the Jerusalem Post. Becky, you and I were both at the Jerusalem Post. Um, our boss, David Horowitz, gave me a company car just, just for the day. And I drove north and was going to be embedded in a paratrooper unit going into Lebanon. Um, and it was a ghost town, Kiryat Shmona, the biggest city on the northern border. It, hundreds of thousands of people just literally fled. There was no Iron Dome. The Iron Dome was a response to that trauma. And so Israelis concluded that it is unsafe to pull out. Olmert's basic idea of the convergence plan is sort of one big policy was rendered moot uh, in Israeli public opinion. And, uh, and Olmert himself was a man who couldn't bring deterrence and we all suffered uh, terribly because of it etc so that war destroyed Olmert he never recovered in the polls I got married this Monday in the middle of a war you are not a soldier anymore you are 50 years old what is the matter with you it's like a couple of kilometers from here like my friend has a 4x4 let's just go cut across the fields and go get him Israel Stories Wartime Diaries Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel Story wherever you get your podcasts. Khabib, we're here also to talk about how our Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is actually in a really great position right now. Even as we hear from his coalition members, so many threats over the past couple of weeks. But you, you're kind of like the the boy in the the emperor's new clothes, and you always point out something that is overlooked but obvious. So tell us about how Netanyahu is actually in a really solid position right now. Right. Well, over over the last four months, we've we've had a government um, that is the most right wing government Israel's ever had. It's many pretty mainstream parties that have been in previous governments, but also the extremists and, and the real extremists, people who were untouchable three years ago. People, if you had told Netanyahu he would be sitting with them in the coalition, he 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 was told that would you support them and he would he said emphatically no they're terrible people and i'll never support them uh and then he is the one who actually shepherded them in ben gvir's otsma yudit party and 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 some pretty politicians who are pretty pretty racist and 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 pretty awful um i try not to label people morally because the least interesting thing i have to tell anybody is my moral opinion about a politician but there are people who cross a line and putting the picture of uh of Baruch Goldstein, the mass murderer of the Hebron attack, um, in uh, uh, who just murdered uh, dozens of Muslims in, in a shooting spree at the at the tomb of the patriarchs on your living room wall for twenty years, as Ben Gvir did, uh, I think is, a, <laughs> I hope it's not controversial to say, is a red line. Um, and so these people are now in his coalition. Uh, that has drawn a tremendous amount of blowback, and then that coalition has handled itself in four months in ways that just burned up 
tremendous amount of political capital of support, half of the voters for his government or a third of the voters for his government, depends on the poll and how they ask the question, uh, are very, very disappointed with this government. Uh, they push the judicial reform, but a version of it that they themselves believe is an extreme version, uh, thinking that it's an opening position. But it's a version of judicial reform that leaves us without a functional democracy in many ways. And so many Israelis saw this, and not as the start of a negotiating process, but as a signal of the government's intent, which was to destroy democracy. And so they created the largest civil protest, or certainly the most sustained civil in the history of the country, probably. Um, and this is a government that that came to power after five long election cycles and finally could could function and could lead and managed to just burn that uh, capital you know, just and destroy it and 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 come out limping uh, favorability ratings are down in the 30s um, and and it's in a terrible state focus in on Netanyahu personally <laughs> you discover something interesting there was a change to Israeli law in 2014 that's very technical but really important to understand this moment um, where the uh, like any parliamentary system in the Israeli parliament you can vote no confidence in the government and then the government falls in 2014 that was changed to something called the constructive no confidence it's not enough for you to vote I have no the parliament to vote a majority saying I have no confidence in the government and then the government falls you actually have to vote in a different government from within the same parliament. So you have to pick a prime minister and you have to pick a cabinet. And if that gets a positive, a majority vote, then the old government falls. A constructive no confidence changed the game. No vacuum, essentially. No vacuum. Good. Exactly. And the point was to make it harder to topple governments to, to ensure to create stability. And Netanyahu is now going to enjoy the fruits of that change because um, the threats from Ben Gvir that he won't vote with the coalition. If on May 29, this coalition doesn't pass a state budget, the Knesset dissolves itself to elections automatically by law. I don't think it even has the numbers to change that law. Uh, and uh, Goldknopf, the head of the United Torah Judaism, Ashkenazi Ultra-Orthodox Party, said, you know, we're not voting with you. Maybe Netanyahu should resign. You're not giving us what we want. On the draft bill for Ultra-Orthodox draft, on the override clause with the judicial reform on a whole bunch of issues. Um, and um, Porush, Mayor Porush, one of the UTJMK's uh, ministers in the government, said maybe Netanyahu should resign. Uh, and you've just seen from across the board, just ally after ally after ally talking about maybe Netanyahu you know, should resign. Now, what even is Even within Likud, we should add. Even within Likud. And what is, what is that? Is Netanyahu's government about to fall apart? Are they bitter and angry and saying, you know, their problem is, their fear of this coalition, of Netanyahu's coalition partners is that he's going to pass May 29. He's going to pass that budget. And then there's just no way to topple him. Once you pass May 29, once that budget passes, this government is is in power without any way to dissolve itself, really, with, with, to be dissolved from from outside, basically until the spring of 2025. And so Netanyahu, because it's a two-year budget, and if you can't pass a budget, you go to elections, but the budget will have passed for two years. And so Netanyahu gets past May 29 with that budget. Netanyahu will make it to March 2025. And the only way to topple him is to go to the Knesset, the current Knesset, without a new election, and find someone else to be prime minister and a coalition around them and vote that in with a majority in the Knesset. Yair Lapid doesn't have those supporters in this Knesset. Uh, neither does Benny Gantz, most likely, even though he does have some support from the ultra Orthodox. But the crisis Netanyahu has to be catastrophic for anybody from the coalition to, to jump sides. And, um, and, and maybe back Benny Gantz, it's a very, very unlikely scenario. And therefore, if Netanyahu gets this budget passed, 
he's it's free sailing for him and that is not a problem for the opposition that is not a problem for Yair Lapid because the opposition in any case can't topple him it's a problem for his own partners over the last four months one of the dramatic and most important causes of the cataclysmic chaos of this government the fact that they pushed really stupidly and poorly and badly uh the judicial reform Uh, by the way I happen to think, and I've written many times in the past, that there is a judicial reform that's needed. And incidentally, we have pretty good polling. 70% of Israelis support reform of the judiciary. And 70% of Israelis are convinced that this was a bad reform. In other words, the government really failed when it should have succeeded easily. One of the reasons the government has failed so many tests, um, just dozens and dozens of bills of massively illiberal and horrible ideas that are deeply unpopular, uh, massive funding for Haredim, even when major campaign promises for Israeli working class voters for Likud's base have been have just not advanced while massive funding has been promised to Haredim. All kinds of different controversial things this government has done. The reason that that this government behaved so chaotically and became so unpopular is that all of these coalition partners around Netanyahu essentially control him. He can't move without their votes. He can't survive without their votes for the budget, for example. And therefore, any single part, Ben Gvir has enough votes to topple this coalition. And so Netanyahu has been essentially in the pocket, or at least desperately trying to maneuver out of the grasp of every single one of his coalition partners, including the most extreme factions in Israeli politics. So, Khaviv, are you saying, though, that after the budget passes, after June 1st, for instance, can Netanyahu no longer rely on Ben Gvir? Can't Ben Gvir, for instance, still quit the coalition and wouldn't that itself topple the government? It can quit the coalition. And then Netanyahu will have trouble passing legislation because he won't have a guaranteed coalition. Ben Gvir might not support legislation he disagrees with anyway. He's a little bit of a, you know, of a, of a chaotic maverick, fa- <laughs> maverick right? Uh, in in the Knesset, he doesn't follow coalition discipline in many in many instances. Um, but Netanyahu will lose a parliamentary majority, but there won't be a parliamentary majority for replacing him with anyone else. And so Ben Gvir's influence over him collapses, and the Haredi influence over him collapses. And a Smotrich of the Religious Zionism Party influence over him collapses. And so every one of these partners that has enjoyed the last four months of squeezing anything they want out of Netanyahu, ultimately they're only going to get those things if it's in the budget. Netanyahu needs to pass that budget. So some of those things are in there. But Netanyahu has also informed them. Why did he respond to Benkvir by saying, I'm not, by the way, Yes, I'm publicly saying you're not in the decision-making forums. You don't like it, leave. He knows Ben Gvir can't leave. There's not going to be a better coalition for Ben Gvir ever. And he knows that on May 30, on the morning of May 30, he's free. And Ben Gvir does what he says. And if he doesn't, he leaves. And Netanyahu has some legislative trouble. But Netanyahu runs the country. And he runs defense policy. And by the way, the further Ben Gvir gets from him, the more comfortable that is for Netanyahu, certainly on the global stage. Let's take this, uh, I don't know, prediction to to another level. It's June 1st. Netanyahu wants to pass another bill, but Ben Gvir is opposed to it. United Torah Judaism is opposed to it. How can it pass? Let's imagine it's about core curriculum, which the Haredim oppose in the Haredi education system. But it doesn't specifically concern the Haredi education system. I don't think Netanyahu will go to war with the Haredi community. That's Politically, it's not tenable, even if he believes in things like core curriculum in all schools. Um he gets Yeshatid on a specific issue, narrow issue. The Knesset always, throughout its history, has been able to cross lines. Uh, there, there's been legislation passed by very unpopular uh, Arab parties, Arab parties that are anti-Zionist. 
but have been able over the years to pass very significant consumer protection bills, for example, with the support of the right and the left and everybody. In other words, when when the Knesset gets into the substantive work, there are coalitions for specific uh, issues. Um, ben Gvir leaving the coalition will essentially uh, positions Ben Gvir probably well because he has no base of his own. His entire campaign is that he's a far right critic of the right, urging the right to be more right. Um, so it's not even a terrible thing for Ben Gvir. It might even happen. But Netanyahu then just leads a Knesset where no one can replace him, even if he doesn't actually have the ability to pass legislation. You want to pass serious legislation, you need to reach across the aisle. I'm not sure that's a disaster for the country. It actually sounds like a utopian situation that we're not seeing right now, this reaching across the aisle. Very rarely are we hearing of cooperation like this. What makes you think that the opposition or anyone else would actually cooperate? Politically, it would be unwise. The public wants to see a civil war. I mean that a little facetiously. The public doesn't literally want a civil war. But every camp, every political camp does want to see its side standing ground, standing its ground and and defending its values and its identity. But on the substance, the Israeli mainstream, I mean, 80 percent of Israelis, uh, Jews and Arabs, don't disagree on most issues that the Knesset actually has to deal with, uh, issues of cost of living, issues of housing, issues of, uh, you know, um, everything on the agenda except the big famous things that journalists make famous because they're, you know, touchstones of identity or wars or the conflict or anything like that. Um, on the vast, vast majority of issues, most Israelis agree. We had a government now under Bennett and Lapid where Yeshatid controlled the economy ministry. That's the major economic regulator. And they were big, big fans of uh, streamlining imports rules. Israel has the most labyrinthine and disastrous and formerly communist, basically socialist, uh, rules for importing things. And it's one of the reasons everything in Israel costs 30% more than in Europe. And streamlining that will reduce the cost of living uh, tremendously and quickly. And Ona Bel Bivai, the former economy minister, was a big fan of it and helped advance this, uh, this legislation. And now Nir Barkat is the economy minister for Likud, and is a big fan of it, and is helping to advance this legislation. The legislation itself is actually weakening and not advancing the way it should because of lobbyists and because of infighting and because everybody's attention is elsewhere. But a government that comes into power able to function will discover that there is no disagreement on the economy between Yashatid and and and, uh, and Likud. Netanyahu isn't handling this conflict with Islamic Jihad any differently than Lapid handled his conflict with Islamic Jihad, what was it, five months ago? Um, and so there's... On policy, one of the fascinating things, the whole world is polarizing. America is polarizing. Everybody's polarizing. And there are all kinds of interesting mechanisms causing it. The the echo chambers of social media and the way people are sorting themselves out by moving to places where people agree with them and all kinds of interesting phenomena all over the free world. It's not unique to Israel. What's special about Israel is that we're polarizing even though we agree on everything. That's different from America. Um, And so there is, I think, a baseline for making real substantive changes that help everybody. That will be something possible, I hope. But you're talking about politicians as if they are reasonable people. And we're not seeing that so far, definitely not under this government. And even when Netanyahu was head of the opposition, nothing that was done or not done was done with a reasonable way. Netanyahu voted against bills that his government, his previous governments brought even. Where are you getting this idea that people will be reasonable this time? Netanyahu put party victory over the public good in every situation of the la- in the last five years. Every single one. There isn't, nobody can find, I mean, Netanyahu supporters are going to hear that and get angry at me, but 
find me a place where he crossed the aisle and voted the way the other side wanted him to vote. Um, he did that out of a deep belief, first of all, that you win. You win and apologize later. First you win. Uh, but also out of a deep belief that his winning is the best thing for the country, by far better than any economic initiative that might help uh, working class Israelis, you know, uh, pay their bills. Um, because he'll then fix the economy completely and you can't trust the other side to do that. Um, so he has this, by the way, that's not unique to Netanyahu. That's very common among politicians. I can save the world. The other side's a catastrophe. They believe it genuinely after a few years. Um, but they will have to either pay a public price for failing that. We've seen so much division and so much real sense of civil war over the last four months that I feel, I think, I can't really prove it yet. We're going we're gonna to try and sift through polling and learn polling over the next few months. I think there's a real public hunger for the opposite. One of the ways that Netanyahu can try and rebuild the narrative of his government which so far has been Ben Gvir runs the show, Smotrich runs the show, the Haredim are going to get flushed with somebody else's money. They don't work productively enough or work enough to pay for their own society and their own lifestyle. And so everyone else is paying for it, right? That is deep anger. That is a, a deep and real, and by the way, completely appropriate anger. Don't build a society based on someone else paying for it. Netanyahu wants to change the narrative of his government that has been set as that. Uh, it's one reason why he's lost something like in different polling, he's lost somewhere between five and 15 seats to Likud voters. Likud voters have grown disgusted with this government because of those things. Um, he wants a new narrative. And why isn't the new narrative going to be, no, we're all in this together. Ben Gvir, you know, made him, kicked himself out of the coalition. I'm not going to go cry over him and chase after him. Let's do this. Let's let's pass these things together. I was, you know, a terrible person four years ago when I didn't vote with you. Fine, great. But right now, let's do this. Yet you're Lapid, you know? It is a chance to rebuild that. Now, I feel like the elephant that, that is charging through the room right now yeah. is the judicial overhaul. Right now, it's frozen, as you said. And so people can perhaps calm down. But what... What will happen if, when, if, when, if it becomes unfrozen, when it's on defrost, and then everything is just cycled back up again? That's a great question. One of the terrible costs Netanyahu will pay for suddenly being in control again, for being in a position where his own coalition partners can't topple him and, and demand from him everything they want and, and, and embarrass him and shatter his you know popularity and, and just destroy everything for him, is that the buck stops with him. He'll be responsible. There's been a debate in Israel until now of about this judicial reform, and the debate is essentially over the government's intent. What does the government actually want? This radical extreme version that was first suggested by Yariv Levine, which Yariv Levine has then said, yes, there are elements of it that are actually anti-democratic, he says three months later, and thinks that that exonerates him because that means it was just a negotiating position, obviously. Oops, Oops right. <laughs> but if you don't trust him, if you're not the sort of person who would vote for him, he just literally presented a judicial reform that's anti-democratic. And he now admits it three months later as a kind of what, mea culpa, but then he says we're going to push this forward again as soon as we can. Um, and so the question becomes, what does the government actually want? Uh, this is something that I have disagreed with our boss, David Horowitz, on, um, where David said, look, people say something. I, I, excuse me for paraphrasing David. I, I'll let David explain his position. But as I understand it, it's if someone tells me I'm doing something, I believe them. And the government has shown me and told me that it is doing this for illiberal reasons, and it has declared its illiberal reasons with a thousand different bills and statements. I believe them. And 
the debate has been, what is the government's intent? Now, the judicial reform moving forward after the budget passes, after Netanyahu is secure, after the constructive no confidence demand means you really can't topple him, and therefore his own coalition partners are much weakened in, in respect to him, is his. Whatever that is, that's what Netanyahu wanted and wants. And now we're going to see if he is a reformer, if he wants the 60% of the reformers, 70% of reform that 70% of Israelis want, Israeli public opinion is more complex than that, but just to throw out a basic concept, um, most Israelis want some reform, right? Does he support that? And everything else was a just terribly mismanaged, you know, um, a negotiating strategy? Or does he want to gut the judiciary and allow his executive branch that basically controls the parliament to do whatever the heck he wants? And we're going to find out. You're painting a picture of Netanyahu as a master chess player and the 3D, 4D, 5D version of chess that most people can't conceive of. And and you know what? I buy that, okay? But it also sounds to me like you're suggesting, perhaps you're not, that this whole period of unrest over the judicial reform was just a way of buying time, treading water, until his budget is pushed through and he secures his power. Um. Well, so I think he's, if there was such a thing as, three-dimensional chess, he'd be very good at it. He is not that good at it. Nobody is that good at it. Um, the judicial reform was real. Yariv Levine is honest, uh, believes in it passionately. Um, does he believe in the specific version or does he believe in 20% less of it, but basically believes in it? Um, and Netanyahu wants a judicial reform. I do think he ideologically supports the idea. What what um and and everything after that statement essentially has been a disastrous mistake in other words no i think netanyahu massively mismanaged it he didn't mean to get this far without a budget he wanted the budget prepared passed through the legislative process very very early a lot of things had to be taken out of this budget the import reforms are gone from this budget almost entirely gutted and not because netanyahu doesn't support the import reforms he literally promised in the campaign in, on television that he was going to actually dismantle the Israel Standards Authority, which creates these unique standards for products that means that importing them takes a whole big project and many import, many foreign manufacturers won't send to Israel because it doesn't want to have to stand and, you know, um, to import a washing machine from France to America. Um, America and France have equalized their standards. They're the same stand, legal standards for what a washing machine is and safety standards and all that. So you just literally bring the washing machine over and, and you're done. Israel has a special washing machine standard. You know, I don't know specifically about washing machines, but for example, it has a standard standard for what a backpack is. You can't import a backpack to Israel unless your backpack manufacturing process in China matches Israel's standard. Israel's the only country on earth with a special standard for backpacks. No, you just Backpacks are not a thing that needs safety standards well, anywhere else. We have stiff necks, you know, so we need we special, need special backpacks. backpacks, right? Yeah. And this is these are protectionist measures that nobody knows about because they're super boring. But in the end, this super boring thing raises massively the cost of producing anything and shipping it to Israel. And Netanyahu in the campaign said, I'm closing the the standards authority the very the very you know um, um bureaucracy that does this that handles this i'm shutting it down not only is the standards already not being closed down most of the equalizing of standards just join the eu standards this if, if something is safe enough for a child in belgium it's safe enough for a child in israel and the idea of having a separate standard is only a protectionist measure that raises the costs for everybody so just equalize the standards with the eu standards like america did right that's gone now, that is the single most useful way to lower cost of living in Israel, allowing competitive imports from Europe. Um, 
and it's gone from this budget, which is a disaster. But Netanyahu thinks to himself, I have to get the budget passed. I don't have time to make this fancy, complex budget because the judicial reform was just frozen in the end of March, early April. We don't have time to do a serious, thoughtful budget that actually passes these reforms. You know what? I pass the budget, stabilize the government, and then I can pass any reform I want. Who's going to stop me, right? So that's where things stand right now. I don't think he was cleverly delaying to the budget. I think it was a catastrophe, and now he's, he's playing catch-up. Okay, Khaviv, obviously this whole conversation is pointing to the inevitability or the hope at least that the budget will pass. Do you see any kind of situation in which it won't? I don't. Not only that, I, I read the um, extreme anxiety and tension and anger among the coalition partners, Bengvir's antics, uh, Goldknopf and, and Porush and others uh, screaming and shouting, Shas, Shas, Netanyahu's single most loyal partner for decades. Shas said, if the dairy law doesn't pass, allowing Arya Dairy to serve in the cabinet despite having corruption convictions, uh, we're not voting for the budget. Shas said that openly, publicly. A, a spokesman of the party said it in the party's own newspaper, which means he couldn't have said it without approval from above. All of that, I read, as a desperate attempt to try and squeeze Netanyahu at the last minute before there's no squeezing on Netanyahu anymore. And so um, I think that everybody understands the budget's going to pass or they wouldn't be so desperate right now. Fascinating stuff. Khaviv, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Amanda. It was fun. On Wednesday night, even as foreign reports claimed a ceasefire was on the near horizon, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Defense Minister Yoav Gallant held a joint press conference during primetime news. They said, essentially, that news of Operation Shield and Arrow's death have been greatly exaggerated. Netanyahu said, We say to terrorists and those who send them, we see you in every place you can't hide and we choose the place and time to hurt you, us and not you. Gallant added, we are ready to continue operating in Gaza area against Islamic Jihad and against any party that tries to challenge us. According to what we just heard from Khaviv, one of Netanyahu's goals in any military conflict is to be in control of its final image. As I saw the prime minister standing shoulder to shoulder with the principal defense minister whom he initially fired a month ago for standing up for those principles, I wondered, maybe Netanyahu has already gotten the image he was aiming for. This podcast was recorded in Jerusalem's Nomi Studios and produced and edited by The Pod Waves. Have a comment about this or other episodes of What Matters Now? Email us at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Look for more What Matters Now episodes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Until next week, Shalom. Shalom.